think we'll start. Um, first of all, a very warm welcome to all of you. Some of you I know have been here before, and for some of you this may be your first time at Gaia House. But a very warm welcome to this retreat. My name's Christina Feldman, this is Jenny, and this is Chris, who for various logistical confusions too complex to explain, will be joining us tomorrow. So this evening, I want to basically give you an introduction to the retreat. Looking at your forms, I'm aware that you know, we have a real mixture of people here. Some of you have done many retreats. For some of you, this is your first silent retreat. I think pretty much for everyone here, there are ways in which you are either currently or intending to integrate mindfulness into your more professional lives. And this is really often a shared bond on these retreats. Now, for those of you who are new to this particular retreat environment, you know, some of it will immediately feel very odd to you. And I just want to acknowledge that. You know, you may not be used to seeing Buddhist statues at the front of the room or the various imagery that we have around the house. Even the silence may be a rather alien environment. First of all, I want to just assure you that we have no intention in endeavoring some covert way that you leave a retreat a Buddhist um, you know, you can look at this as works of art or however way you want to see it. I might just talk a little bit about the, the relationship, actually. Um, you will hear us, uh, I think, in some of the instructions and in the, Dharma ta- in the evening talks, you will actually hear us making quite some considerable references to Buddhist teaching and practice. I'd like to explain a little bit why that is so. I mean, certainly in our culture today, countless people are appreciating the benefits of being more mindful in their lives. Countless people are appreciating the sort of therapeutic benefits of being able to be mindful, to understand the workings of their hearts and minds. Countless people are benefiting from the way in which mindfulness is actually taking some of the bewilderment or sense of being lost out of their lives. And instead, replacing that sense of bewilderment with a greater sense of capacity, something they can cultivate for themselves, a way of being that actually is bringing a great deal more peace and clarity into times and situations that have felt confused. What uh, many of us who've been working in this this domain for a very, very long time, 
really appreciate that the very long, long tradition of mindfulness and the way in which pretty much all teachings of insight meditation as well as all the forms of mindfulness-based applications really have their origins pretty much in one particular teaching given by the Buddha 2,600 years ago about the foundations of mindfulness, establishing mindfulness, wakefulness in our lives. So what we see here, and I think you know, many these retreats in many ways are kind of a wonderful uh, kind of example of this. I mean, certainly Buddhist teaching has always been in a process of translation. From the time it really, you know, began with the Buddha in India through its very development through different cultures and times, the teaching of wakefulness, the teaching of insight, the teaching of kindness and compassion has always been in a process of translation as it's moved through different cultures, whether it's been Tibet or China or Japan or Sri Lanka. There's always been a dialogue between the teaching and the culture of that time. And I think that process of translation is something that's very much continuing in our culture today in the quite remarkable and I think very rich dialogue between science and psychology and some very ancient traditional teachings And I think that dialogue that is happening between them, I I believe it is a dialogue that is actually enriching both traditions. Um, I think that the whole Buddhist tradition of meditation is being enriched in many ways by the more scientific, psychological dialogue and in the ways that mindfulness is now being incorporated into so many ways of helping people to come to a greater sense of balance and groundedness and wakefulness in their lives. 2,600 years ago, the Buddha came out with, when he was asked really what he was teaching, he came out with this very, very simple statement that he basically said, I teach one thing that there is suffering and that there is an end to suffering. And in many ways, it is that statement is the very place where this more historical and yet alive teaching really meets the whole world of mindfulness-based applications in their various forms. That there is suffering and there is an end to suffering. And then, of course, the Buddha went on at great length to talk about the very path that could be practiced by anyone. Spoke about the healing of inner torment, the healing of inner anguish, the healing of confusion. And that healing talked about a path in in that healing that really could be practiced by anyone. Didn't have to be a scholar, didn't have to be a Buddhist or an academic. 
that all one actually needed to cultivate and to walk that path was to have a mind, to have a body, and actually a willingness to really cultivate that inner capacity for understanding, for kindness, for compassion. There is a certain timelessness, I think, to the human heart. There's a certain timelessness to the human mind. It, it's so interesting when, you know, if you ever feel so inclined to, to read some of the discourses that the Buddha gave 2,600 years ago and really look at what people are talking about and really gets a sense of how people 2,600 years ago in India we're actually facing so many of the same dilemmas and the same challenges that people around the world face today. People would come to the Buddha and ask, you know, what do we do with this life that often feels so out of control, so subject to conditions? What do we do with the realities of aging and sickness and death? What do we do with the realities of change and loss and heartache and disappointment? What do we do with a life, an unpredictable life, that so often seems to refuse to cooperate with our desires and our expectations or even our demands or our sense of how things should be? You look at the stories of people at those times and how much those stories, people are talking about the struggle that they meet inwardly in the face of often not getting what they want or at times getting what they really didn't want to get. Um, the challenges of impermanence, the challenges of uncertainty, the challenges of insecurity, of not finding a, a way, a ground beneath our feet that can be relied upon, that is steady. Now, it's so interesting, when, when we look at those stories of the past and when we look at the stories of our own lives, and indeed probably for many of you, the lives and the stories of people who come to you looking for help, we can sort of also spot some very classic ways of, of responding as human beings to the difficult and to the uncertain and to the unpredictable. Some of these ways of responding or reacting seem to lead to more suffering, more struggle, more anguish. And there are also ways of responding to the difficult that perhaps contribute to really finding the end of struggle and suffering. One of the classic pathways is a sense of despair, depression, the feeling of life being unfair, the feeling inwardly of being helpless, powerless, this shouldn't be happening. 
Perhaps another of the classical pathways of reacting to the difficult is with anger, with aversion, pushing it away, or else blaming, blaming inwardly or blaming outwardly, judging inwardly, I've done something wrong, or it's your fault. Another of the pathways, certainly not spoken about in the Buddhist tradition, but one that I certainly come across quite frequently, is the pathway of guilt. You know, that I've done something to deserve this. It's because I'm so unworthy or inadequate or incompetent that my life is like this. The Buddha said that these are all ways of compounding suffering. Heaping pain upon pain. I think it was, might have been Freud who, who said that 25% of suffering in this life is intrinsic to having a body and living in an unpredictable world. And the other 75% of suffering in this life is born of trying to avoid the first 25%. The other way, certainly, that is suggested in this teaching is different. What the Buddha suggested in the face of the difficult, what at times seems unacceptable or confusing, is to cultivate the pathways of investigation, of compassion, of insight, of kindness and mindfulness. And he spoke about these ways, these cultivations, as being the ways to bring about the end of pain, about beginning to walk a path of healing. I think it is this latter pathway that often brings people to meditation practice, But it's this latter pathway that also brings people into many more clinical, therapeutic environments of learning how to understand what is actually going on and finding another way to meet it. Befriending our mind. What we will talk about on this retreat and what will we will cultivate actually as a practice is in many ways quite a developmental practice because it begins with what we're doing actually right now. We stop. We stop. We step out of the busyness. We step out in many ways of the fixing, the doing, the performing, the... Uh, being preoccupied, and we stop that very simple step. It's the first step, in many ways the most important step. Because when we can stop, we can begin to listen inwardly. We can begin to listen to the, the life of our body, We can begin to listen to the life of our minds, the life of our hearts. These are actually the first steps of mindfulness. We can learn the possibility of befriending 
what we meet in that listening, rather than judging, blaming, resisting, avoiding, comparing, we can actually learn to befriend, to stand near to all experience, to stand beside all experience with a sense of interest, a sense of curiosity, a sense of investigation. We learn to turn our attention, our mindfulness, without fear, without aversion, to embrace the life of our body, mind, heart. As one teacher once put it, they said, to know the mind of another is to be wise. To know your own mind is to be liberated, is to be awakened. I think more and more in, in mindfulness trainings, it's really come to be understood that mindfulness is not simply a technique that we deliver to another. That in so many ways, our capacity to teach mindfulness is so directly related to our capacity to embody it. To learn how to develop in ourselves that actual dedication to stillness, to balance, to understanding, to kindness. What we, I think, begin to see for ourselves in a retreat is how our minds, how our hearts seem to live in this state of potentiality. That our minds have a remarkable capacity, actually, for confusion, obsession, preoccupation, rehearsal, comparison, judgment. But in truth, it's exactly the same mind that has the potential for clarity, for empathy, for generosity, for kindness. What we really learn, I think, through this practice for ourselves is that the shape that our mind takes is not somehow just an accident. That there is a process to how our mind is shaped moment to moment, to what potentiality is actually born. So wonderful uh, little story I read some years ago about a little boy having a nightmare, and in this nightmare he's running away from this monster that's pursuing him. And yet the faster he runs, the closer the monster gets until the monster jumps on his back and knocks him to the ground. And the little boy in his nightmare sees himself sort of shouting and yelling, saying, help me, help me, what should I do, what should I do? And the monster leans over and says to him, why ask me, it's your dream. Why ask me, it's your dream. And I think part of what we do in this practice is actually to realize the kind of 
choices that may be available to us when we take this, when we walk this path and develop this capacity for stillness, for awareness, for kindness, for compassion. Nyana Panika, who is one of the elders in this tradition, really spoke about the development or the three steps of, of insight or awakening. And the first of these steps he really talked about is actually to know the mind, to know the heart. The second of the steps he talked about is to shape the mind, to shape the heart. And the third of the steps of insight that he talked about or steps of this path is actually to liberate the mind, to liberate the heart. Now in this teaching, the word mind and heart are actually used interchangeably. But to know the the mind, to start to know the pathways of our mind, the pathways that our hearts take, to know the emotions, to get the sense of all the changes that our minds and hearts go through in a single day, a single hour, calm, agitated, happy, sad, contracted, dull, to know without judgment and without blame. It's the first step of befriending the mind, befriending the heart, simply to know. The second step Yanapanika talked about is to shape the mind. Something that I think is important to acknowledge is, is our mind, our heart, is always being shaped by something. Another way of saying it is that we are always practicing something. There is never a moment when we are not practicing something, when our mind and heart is not being shaped by something. Sometimes our mind, the shape of our mind is really being unconsciously shaped by habitual patterns and reactions, aversion, resistance, hunger, grasping, comparing. Other times, and what is really being suggested in this path, is that this mind, this heart, can actually be shaped by all that that leads to the end of suffering, the end of struggle. That our mind, our heart, can equally be shaped by the cultivation and the practice of mindfulness and compassion and kindness. One of my favorite teachings from this tradition, something that I I think is so significant not only in our own practice, but also in the teaching of mindfulness, this very simple teaching that the Buddha offered, what we dwell upon becomes the shape of our mind. And that the shape of our mind very frequently becomes the shape of our world. Could almost put it another way to say that what we practice consistently turns into habit. And habit, in a way, turns into character. If we dwell upon repeatedly patterns of blame or shoulds or judgment, aversion, it does indeed become the shape of our mind. If we dwell in patterns of anxiety, 
fear, apprehension. It becomes the shape of our mind. And this indeed actually often becomes the shape of our world. We can also see if the mind dwells in investigation, generosity, friendliness, this too becomes the shape of our mind. This is what this practice invites, that none of this is accidental, that this is a path, it is a cultivation. I think the journey of mindfulness is a journey from the mind being shaped by unconscious habits and reactions rooted in the past to a more conscious, awake mode of being rooted in the present and responsive to the present. The third step of insight, perhaps, in this teaching is to liberate the mind. What does that mean? To liberate the heart, the mind, from struggle, from torment, from obsession, from contractedness, from everything that heaps suffering upon suffering in our lives. So it is a journey, it is a path. But somehow there is some great sense of immediacy, I think, about this journey, this path. Because it's not somehow that we, you know, we often talk about a practice but clearly there's, there's more to this than just practice. If it was just practice, it would only be a question of time. So I think there's something more to this about practice. It is actually a cultivation. And there's something, a great immediacy about it. Because we really talk about this cultivation moment to moment of our heart's capacity for wakefulness. Our heart's capacity to meet the moment with kindness and with compassion. We will have a lot more to say about this over these coming days. Jenny. Oh, Mark's going to be to do this. So, yeah, I'd also just like to welcome everybody and some people I know, some people I've never met. And... Uh, I was just thinking what a, what a lovely thing to do at the beginning of a new year after whatever the last few days, a couple of weeks has held for us. It can be a very challenging time in lots of ways and just to arrive at the beginning of January and connect with our practice, with our commitment to awareness and awakening. So I yeah, applaud you for doing that. And uh, I just want to say a few things about the framework of the retreat and how we, how we set things up on retreat really to support the, the depth, the continuity of, of practice for each individual and collectively. Um, what we're really wanting to provide here is a a safe container, somewhere that will really hold your practice, your your day-to-day activities, so that you can let go of the demands, the responsibilities, the distractions of of daily life, and really give priority to the practice of of mindfulness in its broadest sense. And 
most people here, everybody here has, has an interest or some experience in mindfulness-based applications, MBSR, MBCT, etc. And I'd really invite you to, bearing in mind really what Christina said about embodying practice, the mind will sometimes come up with questions like, well, what's this going to have to do with my work? Or how, how does this influence? What has this got to say about work? This is really a retreat for you. And so really focusing, just trusting that taking our practice deeper and, and focusing on that will um, influence and benefit the work that we do without that having to be a consciously made connection, certainly not during the retreat. So there are three uh, pillars to the, the, the framework of the retreat that I'd like to, to touch on. They kind of support, um, kind of tripod perhaps, that we can rest this container on. Mixing my metaphors here. So the first one I'd just like to talk about the simplicity of, of it. I mean already you probably see this is a place that is uh, in many ways very, very simple missing a lot of the distractions of everyday life, um, especially if you live in a city. The schedule is very simple. You'll have noticed it's mostly sitting, walking, sitting, period of mindful movement every day, which Claire will be leading. We'll have instructions at particular times, uh, the first sitting in the morning and the afternoon. There'll be some interviews uh, in small groups and some one-to-ones perhaps, some talks in the evening, your work period, the same work every day at the same time, meals, not the same meals, but similar meals perhaps at the same time. There's no point at which you have to decide what to do next, really. I remember being once on retreat in India and it was just after lunch and I was kind of, I went for a little walk around the grounds and then I was sitting on a wall and I felt slightly bored and I thought, when's the next thing on the program? And then I thought, well, the next thing on the program is either going to be sitting or walking. So it was just my mind looking for, for, for something to hook on to. So just really inviting you to surrender to the program. And notice how the mind will seek distractions, it'll seek entertainment, it'll start reading the soya milk packets or the notice board when you know exactly what's on it, you've read it before. So do keep an eye on the notice board, but just notice that tendency of the mind to want to go out there. We have no TV, no radio, no internet. We invite you not to read books, not to use the library, not to read the novel you've brought with you, if you have. Just to really allow silence, and I'll say more about that in a minute. So there's a simplicity. simplicity. You don't need to think about the schedule. It's just there. And it contains and supports our practice. Supports the continuity of mindfulness. And the second foundational pillar of the framework of the retreat is uh, what we call uh, ethical practice. The word in Pali is sila, which we could translate restraint. It's that sense of just not giving immediate expression to our thoughts and feelings, very important aspect of mindfulness. 
And it's seen as very foundational in this path of awareness and awakening. Because of um, what Christina was talking about, that how we shape our mind, we're always shaping our mind in, in each moment. So our behavior, our speech, our thoughts, is constantly having an influence on our, our overall mental state. And placing our, our ethical behavior, our values, if you like, at the foundation of our practice is a way of really acknowledging that. It's very implicit in the, the attitudinal foundations of, of mindfulness-based approaches, even though it's not made explicit. But on retreat, we really invite you to bring a more conscious attention to that, uh, to particularly how, how we act. Um, is it, are we acting in a way that's considerate and supportive to this small community sitting together these few days, each other? Is it supportive of our own practice? And is it in line with a, a wholesome or skillful intention uh, in our lives? And one way that this is expressed is in a, a list of, of precepts, um, ethical precepts. But really they're, just, they're expressing this general principle of bringing more attention to the wholesomeness, the um, the impact of our behavior on on our mental states and therefore on our world, on our lives. So the precepts, in many ways, they they express a kind of universal value system of of most spiritual and other traditions of non-harming, not stealing, not killing, not exploiting. But they're very much framed not as commandments or rules or do's and don'ts, but as rules of training, that's how the Pali is expressed. These are rules of training that, that we take on. They're how we might naturally, well, how we would naturally behave at our very best, how we would act at our best, but how we often um, fall down if we're acting without awareness or, or perhaps more in a self-centered way. And they're expressed not as specific prescriptions. We each have to work out what a precept would mean for us in our lives. Um, there's, there's often arguments about does, you know, does not taking intoxicants mean abstinence or the occasional drink? Does this mean this or that? We really have to, to make that inquiry for ourselves. So the first precept is not to harm or kill any living being. Um, so just noticing that in terms of particularly the very small beings that we might be sharing Gaia House with but also just in terms of that general sense of um, and in our lives it's obviously many more ways that we can potentially do harm but it may just come down to being considerate to our roommate or hopefully not a lot of you sharing but just being considerate to everybody here the second precept is not taking what is not freely given. We could say not stealing, but I like the way it's worded. It's slightly more subtle than that. Not taking anything that isn't clearly being offered to you. That might be taking someone's time. It might be taking their energy. It might be just, I'm not quite sure who this belongs to, this biscuit, whatever. Just being really clear about what, what is being offered. 
The third precept is generally um, not exploiting or harming through sexuality. And on retreat, the invitation is to celibacy, just to allow that whole area of our lives to, again, not to be a distraction, to channel that energy into our practice. Um, and that might mean both you know, physical celibacy, but also just noticing, again, where the mind can go. Um, and, and just a sense of a simple um, few days of, of perhaps a more sense of solitude with, with others. The fourth precept is not to lie or speak harmfully in any way. And on retreat, uh, we practice silence. But noticing your thoughts, you know, in the silence, we can, we can still do lots of, of uh, speaking in our head and just noticing the direction of our thoughts, the wholesomeness of our thoughts, and the effect that has, not in any sort of judging way or um, precious kind of way, but just noticing what happens. And the fifth precept is not to cloud the mind with intoxicants. So um, on retreat, the invitation obviously is to continue to take any prescribed medication of whatever kind, uh, that, that you need, and that, that's really important, but specifically to avoid recreational drugs or alcoholic drink. And if you smoke cigarettes, you might like to just try going without for a few days, but if you do smoke, to really do so outside of Guy House grounds and, and somewhere a little bit private. So all this supports our meditation practice because... Partly it, it just clears our mental states, it clears our conscience, we know that we can be confident we're not causing harm and can just contribute to a clarity and peacefulness in the mind. So although the precepts are about how we behave towards others, they also very much affect us. We could call it enlightened self-interest to practice the precepts. And the third support that we offer and encourage uh, and really request and invite here is silence, which again is to offer mutual support to each other and to the practice environment of Gaia House. So um, there will be opportunities to talk in interviews and you may need to talk briefly to get your work instructions tomorrow, but really only uh, speaking as necessary and practicing silence the rest of the time. And for some of you, this is familiar and you think, oh yes, wonderful. And for others, it might feel quite challenging and a little scary. And I'd really like to invite you and encourage you to see it as an opportunity, not as some kind of um, rule or regulation that, oh, we're at Guy House, we have to be in silence, but what a gift, what a very rare opportunity it is. I remember many years ago I was going on a, a personal retreat for a week and I was talking to a colleague and she said, so you're not going to speak to anyone for a week? And she said, she said oh, I don't think I've ever gone 24 hours without talking to someone. And, you know, that's probably uh, quite long for a lot of people. Uh, and she was obviously quite drawn to the idea what would it be like to go longer? So on retreat with other people, it offers a very different way to be with each other, uh, alone with others, as somebody once called it in a, a book title. 
so we can drop all our concerns about what image we're creating, um, what impressions we're making on others. What a relief not to have to, to think about that. It also includes not escaping into conversation when the going gets tough, but really staying with our experience, really inquiring into it. So if you've come here with people you know, uh, I would suggest you, you make a perhaps a silent pact or perhaps this evening just by some eye contact that, that you really respect that, not to make a little exception, a little date for a walk with someone you know, but to see what it's like to be around a good friend or a partner in silence for a few days. It's a whole other way of, of relating. So... Uh, Again, this really reduces distractions. It allows a much deeper experience of ourselves and our mental states. And silence here doesn't just mean the absence of speech. Um, one of the, the perhaps the most challenging areas in, in modern culture is uh, the ubiquitous mobile phone. So really encouraging you, turn the cell phone off and leave it off. If there are very exceptional circumstances and you need to be in touch with family, let us know and we can talk about how that can be managed. But you can give family and friends, obviously, the Gaia House number uh, and there's an emergency contact number that they can, they can have. And if you're not sure that you'll be able to not just be tempted to check a text or two which can just pull you way off the retreat, give the phone to... Mark or to one of the coordinators for safekeeping during the retreat. But I would suggest just turn it off and put it at the bottom of your bag. So if that is going to um, be a surprise to your family and friends that you're not going to be in touch, you may need to clarify that with them this evening. So do take time this evening to tie up any loose ends. If there's anyone that will really worry if you don't contact them for the next few days. Let them know tonight so that then they know that you're in communicado. And we'd also encourage renunciation of, of reading and of, of keeping very copious notes. It's fine, of course, to write some notes, maybe the talks or things you notice, but again, it can just take us away from experience into our, our habitual mind. And just really interesting to explore what it's like just to have the experience and not immediately feeling we, we, we need to comment on it. So there's obviously a lot of non-verbal communication and sometimes that's important not to you know bump into people and things, but just to notice that um, when we pass someone in the corridor, sometimes we feel, Catherine put, a few days ago on the New Year retreat, we feel we have to do something with our face. Um, there's no rule here about whether we smile at people or not or make eye contact or not, but just to be really aware what you're doing, what you're looking at and why. Uh, one teacher I know calls this keeping custody of the eyes, so we have a sense of when we're looking and when we're not. Um, and not to be offended if someone is really keeping... Um, keeping that as a, a practice of not making eye contact. 
If you need to uh, communicate with one of the teachers or one of the coordinators, write a note. I'm sure that's been described earlier. And uh, if there's someone you're concerned about, we'd ask you not to write a note to them, but, but to one of the coordinators or one of us. Unless, obviously, there's a fire, an emergency. So, um, so this practice of silence, it can take our, our meditation deeper and it can also increase our awareness of our speech and our mindfulness in speech after the retreat. And it can really sometimes just connect us to a, a place of stillness in the mind underneath speech and action. So even when we're talking, we can be in touch with silence. So practicing some days of complete silence on retreat can, can really support that. So I'd just like to finish with a short poem by a, a Persian medieval poem, poet, Hafiz which speaks to this, speaks to this silence, if that isn't a contradiction. He says, A day of silence can be a pilgrimage in itself. A day of silence can help you listen to the soul play its marvellous lute and drum. Is not most talking a crazed defence of a crumbling fort? I thought we came here to surrender in silence, to yield to light and happiness, to dance within in celebration of love's victory. So I wish you a nourishing and interesting retreat. going to be ending the evening with a short sitting period but before we do that you feel free if you want to stand up just stretch your body a bit Letting us begin our retreat, the sense of settling into the sense of quietude around you, silence, sound of the wind, 
sense of arriving and settling. Cultivating a receptive listening Bringing that same receptive mindfulness to your body in this moment, your body sitting. Feeling the uprightness of your back, your neck, your head's balance. Mindful of all the places where your body touches the ground, the cushion, the chair. (coughs) Sensations of warmth, of pressure. Feeling your hands touching one another, resting on your legs. Feeling the touch of the air, your clothing, on your skin. And relaxing into your body. In your mind, into your body. Finding in your posture that balance, the marriage of uprightness and ease.
just mindful of all of the different sensations present in your body in this moment. Aware of how those sensations register, how they change, move. Simple being with what is. Just a little more collecting, gathering of your mindfulness, your attention, to sense your body breathing without forcing or controlling that breathing in any way. We have the expanding rising of your body, your chest, with each in-breath, the relaxing with each out-breath. Perhaps with each out-breath, a sense of letting go of any busyness, agitation, sense of simply settling, being present within the breathing, within the body. Just letting the thoughts, the images, 
Just sit in the background of your attention, unhooking a little, bringing into the foreground of your mindfulness a simple awareness of one breath at a time, one moment at a time. In moments when your attention drifts or wanders, just a gentle, intentional remembering to come back, to establish mindfulness once more within your body, breathing.
So we begin. Um, you probably might feel that it's kind of a ridiculous idea for an adult to go to bed at nine o'clock. Might be some distant memory of doing that, but I would really recommend that you actually get as much rest as you can this evening. Certainly finish up anything you need to finish up. Then the wake-up bell will be at 6.30, seven o'clock, sitting before breakfast. I think one of the things to appreciate about coming on a retreat is this opportunity to step out of hurrying. You actually can just relax a little. You know, so much of our lives can be just governed by a sense of urgency and and hurry and must, our endless lists of things to attend to and do and finish and complete. And a lot of that actually you can just kind of like let go of for just these few these few precious and unusual days. So to allow yourself just to slow down a little, to have a sense, even right from this evening, to, to be more embodied, to be present in the body, to, in a way, to, to let every moment matter, how we climb the stairs, how we brush our teeth, you know, the very simple, very ordinary things that are often just kind of drowned out in the busyness of our, of our lives and our days. You know, every year I, I have this kind of practice where, where I, I take upon a sort of one major intention as a practice for a year. And some years ago, I, I, I took upon myself the practice to give up hurrying. I thought I was going to give it up for a year. Um, and it was so interesting to really see how much that was a state of mind. You know, how it didn't mean like moving like a tortoise through life, but how hurrying was just such a state of mind, gripped by this sense of urgency and always leaning forward and always leaning into the next moment. And that, you know, after a year of kind of this this practice of giving up hurrying, I so tend to review these things. You know, was that useful? Was that not useful? And it, I discovered it was such a delight. I've never been ever tempted to take it up again. Um, but it's one of the things that I think a retreat offers, just that chance to kind of let your shoulders drop, just to relax into the moment, in a way to to reclaim so many of the moments, the simple things in our lives that are often swamped by states of mind that are always leaning forward into what's next. Um, There's a wonderful cartoon in the Zen tradition where there's a a young monk. He's obviously asked this elder monk a question, and the elder monk is looking at him with this sense of, of puzzlement on his face, and he says, nothing comes next, this is it. It's kind of a useful sort of proverb for a retreat it's not about life is not going to unfold any longer but how to live the moment we're in as if this is it as if this is really it 
So, yes, I hope you rest well or as well as you can, however it is, and we'll see you in the morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.